Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Today, listeners, you are in for such an amazing treat. I am so honored and thrilled to introduce our guest today, Dr. Susan Sherman. She is a professor in the Department of Health, Behavior, and Society at Johns Hopkins University of Bloomberg School of Public Health, and she focuses on improving the health of marginalized populations, particularly that of drug users and sex workers. She's interested in the structural drivers of health and risk in many different studies. She has over 17 years of experience in HIV prevention all around the world, Actually, her bio is too long for me to read for you listeners, but there will be a link beside your bio. Welcome, Susan. How are you? Thanks for having me. Such a treat to talk to Carmen Logie. Dr. Carmen Logie. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I'm so thrilled you're here. I met you a year ago. Unbelievably, it's been a year in Baltimore when I was doing a Fulbright working, and it was definitely the highlight of of my whole experience in Baltimore. You are so rad and so fun and doing so many great you're things. You're awesome. Well, you're awesome. Really, it was, it's my whole team feels the same way. Everybody <laughs> wants to work with Carmen. It was a love fest all around and a love, love fest grounded in like mutual radicalism around social justice and why we do what we do and also um, just good thinking, thinking well together about so- people that we care about. It's true. Thank you so much. You're so, I love that love fest. It is true. Um, I want you to tell the listeners, you're in an elevator. Somebody is beside you wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask or it's pre-COVID. What is your elevator pitch going up one or two floors? What do you do when people say, what do you do? Radical social change. No, two floors. Um, my work focuses on um, <laughs> it could be one documenting that. I mean, documenting the structural drivers of looking at why people, uh, what causes ill health among people that use drugs and people that sell sex and helping to design evidence-based interventions for sane drug policy and saying, you know, particularly in this country, saying, oh God, see, I already messed up the elevator pitch. <laughs> looking, like, at, you know what? <laughs> looking at root causes of um, health and non-health among people that use drugs and women who sell sex and designing interventions with and for them that really provide people options and also informing policy. I think it's really important to think about that, you know, it's so hard to talk about when we do intervention research. You want people to have options. And for some people that may be quitting what they're doing. Other people, it's doing it in a safer way. It's really not for me to judge which piece of that. Mm-hmm. Even though I think like the, you know, progressive 
people are doing engaged in sex work for all different reasons. And some people might want to leave and plenty of people don't. I think that we forget people actually do make choices sometimes in a context that they have fewer choices than we do. So I feel like our job as researchers is to help bring attention to the fact that people should have more options. And when they do, they get to make their choices. That was like 18 floors. I love that. I mean, I don't know about you. I kind of feel like we're similar in the way we might be riding an elevator if we weren't in a rush and in a good conversation, right. we might go up some extra floors. My next question is, I know where you live and it's absolutely gorgeous. I'm going to show up right now at the time machine with space for physically distancing. Take me back to the time and place where you said, I'm going to focus on this work. You work around social change and social justice with regards to sex work and, and, and drug use. Where do we go on this time machine? Well, we would start maybe, I would say, at the University of Michigan as an undergrad where I did a lot of work around sexual violence and like date rape was a really big issue. And I realized the power of personal being political, like issues that are so shocking that they were political in nature when they were very deeply personal. And then we would be moving with me to San Francisco after college in the middle of the AIDS epidemic and understanding the price people paid for stigma and homophobia, moving to San mm -hmm. Francisco, which was a haven for so many people, for me in different ways, you know, everybody like who... It was before it was so expensive, but... I, I, uh, I love San Francisco. I did not know you lived there. Uh, so Yes, I lived there. It was my chosen home, but, <laughs> you know, and really, so I got really involved in AIDS activism, and that, again, was another lesson about, like, how messed up it was, particularly in this country, um, our morals, which are so hypocritical for so many people, inform policies and create lack of access you know, and why does that, like, people have a basic right to health and people have a basic right to healthcare and people have a basic right not to, to be able to be there when their loved one dies, right? I mean, the fact mm -hmm. that people couldn't go to the hospital because you had families who, like, swooped back in, you know, who hadn't had a relationship with this person for years because of homophobia or disowning them. And all of a sudden, they could make decisions about, they could make decisions about uh, their son or brother, et cetera, like that felt deeply wrong. So that all motivated me politically. And then kind of catching the harm reduction bug. I worked in West Oakland at a community development organization. People were not talking about HIV in the early 90s there in the same way they were talking about it among gay men in San Francisco. Mm. There, of course, were people dying, particularly around drug-related, you know, mediated HIV cases, but it was not talked about. And so it just all came together. And, you know, I used to think it was disparate until I've had to do talks about my career. And I'm like, oh, no, there's a there's a theme in it. And it connects, you know, and then fast forward, just like I got stuck in harm reduction. And this notion that we are only kind of should only face ourselves and be proud of ourselves and how we treat people at all different places in our society, right? The margins, the middle, and we like to forget the margins. And in the United States, the margins are really wide and the gap, it's not a stream between the haves and the have-nots, especially after COVID. And that's many places, but here in particularly where there's such a divide that gets accentuated, this is just crazy to think what it's going to look like the other side of this. So mm. that's how I got where I am. I, I, love, I love that. And um, it's also really interesting to see that your work 
I guess where you are now is really building from your work around sexual violence, then your work in HIV, then your work in substance use, like all these different forms of oppression. Um, I want to ask right, you. I the didn't even use that word. I always think about it as justice, but of course, it's justice, all about injustice. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so my first stigma question is: Why should we care? Why should we care? Why does stigma matter when we're thinking about sex work or drug use? It's, I know it's a basic question, um, but like everybody has question. And yeah, no, no. And you know, hopefully, there's some people listening who really need the answer. You know, like. Because oh, I'm sure a lot of people listening are like, of course I care. Maybe there's some oppositional research. People are like, who is, why is anybody talking about this? And why should we care? <laughs> um, are, the sum is as good as its parts. And, you know, I think it's an interesting, so first, if you don't care about people, you think that people make individual choices that are bad choices and everything is positioned within the lives of the individuals who may choose to sell sex and may choose to use drugs and may use, choose to use drugs in a raging fentanyl epidemic and you blame them. Mm. So if that's your perspective, you should care because their sisters and brothers deliver Amazon packages to you. They mm. work in your grocery stores. So, you know, we think we're so disconnected. We're really not so disconnected now. And the connect, mm -hmm. we never have been, but we see it more with this like raging infectious disease, you know, airborne disease that all I have to do is breathe the air you breathe and then we may be infected. So now we have this really crazy way of showing connectivity, which is unfortunate. So that's one reason why we should care because we should care about me. Or if you also don't care about those people and feel that they honestly made bad choices and they deserve what they get. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. People feel that way for lots of reasons. People feel that way because they pulled themselves up, because they've made tough choices, because they've worked hard. And they may not realize how hard you have to work to stay mm. alive when you have nothing either. Like you could just respect the work ethic and all of like the hustle of when you're poor and addicted. Mm. Mm -hmm. But even if so, say you don't care about any of that, it also is just like so expensive for all of us when everyone's not healthy, we pay for it and not to curse, but it just amazes mm -hmm. me the price we're willing to pay literally for people for are not caring or having empathy or feeling that we're connected. So that's why we should care. Mm -hmm. Now, if you, I mean, I can make an argument for anyone. If you're a religious person, I happen to be <laughs> Jewish, but I have a lot of respect for Jesus. Like these are the people that he would be with. He would be <laughs> like out on the street handing out syringes. My reading, you know, obviously not my religion, but, you know, like empathy runs really deep in all religions. So that's, it's an opportunity to like practice empathy without judgment when it's really hard to see people make choices. So that's another reason to care from a selfish perspective. It really challenges you to be your kind of humane self. And then I care because I think that it's really important. Like it's unjust to have such that huge chasm between the haves and the have-nots. Mm -hmm. um, and we really, so many people, like from when the time they're kids, obviously like a lot of metaphors today, you know, we like throw them in the ocean with no life raft. And we're like, what do you mean you can't swim? No one <laughs> gave you swimming lessons. You don't have a lifeboat. I think that's such a beautiful and powerful explanation you give that can hit so many different people, no matter where they might personally sit, is who of us would like to not be judged by our, our decisions? Probably everybody, right? 
Right. And also, you know, the other thing is I'm always amazed and I really appreciate it. I'm actually co-teaching a class now. And the person who teaches it with me is the only other person. We're both like full professor who ever has acknowledged that we both smoked, loved smoking, mm. smoked. People often just so, and I was really touched by that. Like it literally shaped the way I really appreciate that because I feel like sometimes whether it's your professor teaching or doing research or whether it's a human being, there is a piece in what everyone does that we can connect to. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we may not, the stakes are very different when like the pool of people you're having sex with don't have HIV or STIs. Mm -hmm. Stakes are very different by having unprotected sex in certain circles compared to others. So that's one thing, a point mm-hmm. of empathy. And, the, you know, people often don't acknowledge their own humanness or other people's shortcomings remind us of our own. Mm-hmm. So I think it's so complicated, but it's really important to realize that there are similarities. People's choice is just maybe the stakes are a little bit higher or it's a little bit more of an extreme choice. That's, that's amazing. You've definitely convinced, I think, a lot of listeners who, who might be walking their dog right now, thinking about this in a different way. I'm also encouraging students to listen to this. So I think there's going to be a lot of different people who, who might just think maybe, oh, that's, that's another perspective I haven't considered. My second stigma question to you is, what does this look like? Could you give us an example of a fictional person you might work with? How does stigma operate in their life? Maybe it's a someone who sells sex or some, maybe someone who sells sex and maybe does use substances. What does stigma look like? Let's say like they wake up in the morning. What might that look like in their journey through a day? So I just came back um, from the drop-in center that I helped found and we have evaluated the impact and thankfully we provide medical legal social services um we do a and lot of outreach. beautiful and it's Thank the you. most and beautiful center oh my goodness it is very beautiful i appreciate that and we take all comers we're the place where people go sometimes i'm getting back to your question but where people go literally when like they've been kicked out of the library the library is down the street mm. We have washers and dryers and showers. So people, you know, if it smell or they um, haven't washed their clothes forever, which is this one particular case, the woman kicked out of the library, she just needed a shower and Mm -hmm. she just needed to wash all her stuff. We have a psychiatrist, we have lawyers that, um, and all of um, some volunteer that connect organizations that we work with who place people there, reproductive health, PrEP pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, STI treatment, um, a syringe service program. And now because of COVID, we're out on the street. We had 174 Mm. contacts last week. We give out tons of syringes and safe sex and food and bras and et cetera. And you still have a bus too, right? Like you have your van. We we have a mobile van, but we, yes. And they, but the way that we're doing services now is we have a Google number that Google people call. And so people have gotten in that we do drop-offs even if we're in our van. Wow. Because we have to carry all the stuff. So A, yes, super proud of Spark. But through Spark, I've, I was just there for the first time in months and happened to drive by someone that is like, she has a million lives. Thank God she's alive. She was in jail right before all this happened and got out. She's been at the hospital and she got out. So that's the person that I'm thinking about. Spends a lot of time in our center. You have a living room. You can just hang out. You can eat and go to a book club. You can do yoga. You can do pretty much anything unless you're invading somebody's space persistently, which doesn't happen. I think once in three years, we've had to ask somebody to leave. So I'm thinking about this person and the first visual. So that was a pitch for Spark. But 
Uh, and also just, you I'll know, have the link to it too. It's so inspiring. Well, and also just like, that's the way, you know, my research is not just about doing observational research or, you know, I have a place where I'm, we're lucky enough to provide these services and I really hear stories about people and see people. The first thing I think about is like how people don't look at each other in the eyes, you know, mm-hmm. like first thing, this person rarely will look at me because to her, I'm some kind of authority and, you know, and how many people actually don't look at her because we as a society really throw away an awful lot of people that we don't even think are worthy of our glance. Wow. That's, that's the, but I think it's true. I think that's the first thing I think about, you know, and they're just like, people's lives are really hard. I mean, no one obviously grows up thinking they're going to like sell sex on the street in Baltimore city to get a pill of heroin, which by the way, really isn't that much heroin anymore or, you know, whatever, feed their kids without a drug habit. But this is like how they can, you know, we also have looked um, at motherhood and the meaning of motherhood and how that structures in people's lives. And like, it's not like people, and people should be able to do that safely, but because it's illegal, they're not allowed, they're, they don't do it safely. They're at the hands of cops. They're at the hands of, you know, whoever else else may have a role in making money off them. So part of the visual is that like people look really downtrodden um, and life has, you can, you know, tell when people's life has been hard and everything is a hustle and trauma, like someone who's um, an active harm reductionist in, in the U S and helped founded users union. She always says like trauma was her gateway drug Mm. and trauma is such a gateway for so many people. And what do we offer them? We offer them opiates. We offer, you know, whatever we offer them doesn't really like the prison system. (laughs) That's a good one. Yeah. We offer them the prison system. (laughs) Not a very good option. (laughs) Yeah. Not a good option. We offer them the opportunity to like, you know, sell sex to keep cops from arresting them. Um, We don't offer that, but you know, right. You get the point of what is there for people. So, I mean, the visual is someone who like has a hard time maybe looking at you is downtrodden. Like you can feel the despair and they're just trying to get by. Mm -hmm. And, and, I guess the the next and the final stigma question before we get to some wild cards is let's think about this person. What can we, I I want you to kind of think about solutions at many levels. I know you do and and you are so impressive at your work on changing laws and policies. I want to hear that, but I also just want you to, to tell the listener what can, how can we be part of the solution? How can we end or reduce stigma towards people who sell sex, towards people who use drugs? How can we start being part of a change and how we can look at people in the eye and how people don't have to feel so downtrodden, you know, if they're in the library and, and they're not allowed to sit there because, you know, they, they haven't been able to bathe or something like that? I mean, first of all, look at people in the eye and acknowledge them like as a human being, which... I think is really powerful when that's like, that's not what you, I'm always amazed in some of our studies when we do studies collecting data by mobile, a mobile van and we've gotten thank you notes for people. And it makes me sick to think that, well, I mean, there were a research study from Johns Hopkins who has a particular, has a bad rap in Baltimore for lots of different reasons. Like, and they're thanking us because we treated, treated them with respect. Like I'm thrilled or, you know, I'm, that doesn't always happen and people get mad at our study staff and they can't be in the studies and so they're upset. But, you know, the fact that like 
just whenever someone does like do a bigger act of thanks, it makes me sad because I feel like this may be one of the only places where they get that. Or one of the people say, you're like, you're one of the only people that has talked to me today that I haven't initiated the conversation. You know, like it just, it's, it's sad. So what people can do is, you know, treat people like human beings is think about what is scary to you and then look it up online and see how you may be able to help someone, you know, Mm. like just do like that one thing that pays it forward. There's so much pain right now. You know, it's hard not to timestamp this conversation by talking about COVID, but there's just Mm. so much pain and despair. Give books away in your house or clothes away in your house to a place maybe you haven't done yet. Start realizing the connectedness that we have. It sounds so big and a, uh, no, but it's, and, and that might help us also vote for people who might give people rights or not criminalize. Then right? there's that. Yeah, I was thinking like, <laughs> look, I was all in my. No, I yeah, asked well, you to go that. there because I know that you've done, I mean, you've actually been talking to big legal people about rights. Well, right. Like you, well, I don't know about all the time, but yeah, a lot of our, and you asked that, like a lot of the work that we do in Baltimore in forums, and I just talked to two. Congress people about um, the evidence for harm reduction, certain service program drug checking, and a little bit of OP uh, overdose prevention sites, which there are no sanctioned ones in the U.S. Yeah, a lot of the work that we do informs policy, whether it be literally helping to collect the data that showed there was insufficient syringe coverage in Baltimore City, so we needed to have a more generous distribution policy for syringe services, not one-to-one exchange, which has to be approved by the state legislation since that's how it works in Maryland that Baltimore City has a needle exchange and now the whole state does. Whether it be like specific research for a policy change or in general research that kind of can be more broadly used, that's what we do and why we do what we do. Because otherwise, you know, we have no business doing the kind of, we all, we don't want to, you can further stigmatize. Our research careers should be in public health. You know, we're, I'm not doing art history, which was my first degree, which mm, I, I loved. Know but I mean, that. Yeah, like history and literature. Um, it, you know, we're do, I'm doing something that's applied and I get a lot of kudos out of it. So it's really important to make sure that I like use my voice well mm. and uh, make sure that we're informing policy where we should be. That is amazing. I just have the last couple of minutes. I'm so inspired. You always inspire me. I want the listeners to know a little bit about the real you. So really quick question. One, wild card. Number one, what are you watching on Netflix right now? Or Craver? Oh my God. (laughs) You're awesome. Okay, I'm going to give you two extremes. Um, One was on network TV, and I cannot believe... Well, actually, okay, I'm not even going to talk about that one. I'm watching Madam Secretary, which is interesting. Um, Madam Secretary? I've never heard of that. Oh, Tia Leone, Tim Daly. She's the Secretary of State. It's like civilized diplomacy. It's good. You know, there's some paternalistic issues. It's But it's good. Um, So I'm watching Madam Secretary on my own, and then... Uh, which is always bad. If I watch something on my own, I watch a lot while I'm working and that can, that's bad. I'm watching (laughs) with my husband partner. We're watching the handmaid's tale, which I can't watch a lot of. And I'm always nervous. We shouldn't watch it. I, this was like a big book when I was, you know, in college, it was like Margaret Atwood's handmaid's tale was one of those seminal books and it's terrifying to watch. And I always feel like I'm about to, you know, 
when you're on the top of a roller coaster before you go down. Yes. I, I hate roller coasters, but I feel that way a lot. <laughs> the show is so intense, but it's really well acted and really well done and terrifying, especially oh at this point. So anyway, I'm watching that. I can't watch anything depressing like that. We're watching like next in fashion right now. <laughs> like reality shows with like a competition. I'm, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> Good for you. I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Madam Secretary's like candy. Okay. Uh, quick next wild yeah. card. Yeah. You can go for dinner anywhere in the world with anyone you want, pre-COVID or post-COVID with vaccines. Where do you go and who do you take? Istanbul is my first thought because it's like such Istanbul. an amazing city. I've never yeah. been. Oh, my God. Wow. I picked a place you've never been to. <laughs> Um, or maybe Cappadocia, maybe, which is also, yeah. So oh Istanbul. Yeah. Um, with whom? Oh, oh God. Is it corny to say my grandmother, Sadie? No, yep. that's great. Who died uh, yes. 20 years ago. Yep. I would love to tell grandma Sadie all about life and the world and the world that she, uh, if it had been a different time, she'd be like a rebel raiser out there. Super intellectual, but you know she had a sick husband and she had to work. And she was born in the nineteen, you know, tens, and the world was different. So I would—that's that's who I would go to dinner with. Is is there something special about Istanbul food you like, or like the vibe? Well, uh, just thinking about—I must have seen a picture. It's just really beautiful, or maybe Florence, but you know, it's just like super beautiful, and it it's one of those places in the world where you feel that you're at the crossroads. Like the main mosque used to be a church. Like you get that a lot of history happened in Istanbul and then there's a lot of stuff happening now, but, um, amazing. Okay. There you go. The last wild card before we let you off for the rest of your day. What is one piece of wisdom or advice that you've ever received that's been helpful that you'd like to share with the listeners? Oh God, it all sounds really corny. Corny's okay. We're in a pandemic. So nice. Corny is nice. Okay. What did I heard recently that I thought was really nice? I went to the memorial service of, not to end on a sad note, an amazing man from Baltimore who used drugs for 52 years. And literally, if this man could have been like, he was like, could have been a, um, a diplomat. He was a diplomat in his own life. And after 35 lives, the 36, like, you know, he had a new apartment he was doing all this great COVID work for people who use drugs and, you know, sadly overdosed. Um, and he like, if anybody from the States knows anything about Baltimore and the harm reduction scene, they'll, they'll know who I'm talking about. Amazing. Will Miller, amazing man. I'm um, sorry for your loss. Ugh, I'm sorry for a lot of people's laws. He was just one of those people. He te- thank you. He texted like 20 people in the morning. I was one of them, you know, so he just made everybody feel special, all different kinds of people. And someone at his memorial service, which is the only time I've been around a lot of people, it was weird, was two nights ago outside, masked, Mm -hmm. said, you know, always remember to ask someone at the end of the conversation, don't be too much in a hurry to say, hey, how are you doing? And really mean it. Mm. Like Will was in front of a lot of people. I don't, I didn't know what was going on, that this was going to happen. You know, really like, don't forget to check in with people. Mm-hmm. There yeah. you go. I you love like that. It's a good time to remember to do that. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, that's thank you such so beautiful. Much. I think you're right. Like sometimes we just say like, how are you? And we just like, we just, it's just a way to start the next sentence. It's not actually like to leave a space for a conversation. And I think that's, yeah. 
if we're talking about connecting and empathy and, you know, just human, hum, humanness, <laughs> our human spirit. Yeah. Right. No, I forget too. And you and I both move very quickly, right? <laughs> That's why we get along so well. <laughs> so I know it's amazing we could ever finish conversation. So it's really good to remember to like take a minute. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. I feel so honored to like be, you know, a part of this conversation. I'm really so honored it. to have you here. Thank you so much. You are one of the busiest people I've ever met. So thank you for taking the time to come on our podcast. Ridiculous. That's true. All right. You take care, Karoloji. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Feel like